Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Thoughtful Intentions. I'm your host, Fiona Winch, and I am joined for part two with my mom, Francesca Winch. If you didn't listen to the first part of this um, two-part series, please go do so now. Otherwise, I am afraid you are catching us in the middle of this detailed overview of Irish history, which um, you'll miss a lot. So just go listen. As a reminder, if you are picking up after the first part of this, um, we are starting with the Glorious Revolution. Welcome back. Exciting stuff. Without further ado. So after Cromwell, and this is all in England, remember, we're doing England because England had such a profound impact on Ireland. Do you think I actually learned a lot of this stuff in school, though? <laughs> I feel no. like I don't know. Well, no, I got Yorktown. I got a couple of teachers at Yorktown to teach this a little differently because um, after Cromwell died and they brought back the monarchy, that's called the Restoration Era. OK. Uh-huh. And first Oliver Cromwell, Charles, II, it was Charles II was brought back, OK, from France and he was put on. the Well, when he died, his brother, this is where the brother comes in, James II was given the throne and James II was Catholic because I honestly never- wish they didn't all use the same names. Right, right. It's really James the Second was Catholic because remember their father had been killed. Their father was the king that had the regicide mm-hmm. had been killed. Um, uh, and so James the Second was Catholic, and he also apparently was a little bit of a jerk, um, and was not very popular and had lots of issues, lots of issues. Uh, being Catholic was a big one, but it wasn't the only one. So Parliament decided we don't want this guy in the throne. We just don't want this guy. And this is called the Glorious Revolution. And schools typically teach that it was a bloodless revolution, which drives me crazy because it was not a bloodless revolution. James II didn't say, oh, you don't want me to be king? Okay, no problem. No, no, no. What he did was he went over to Ireland because he was Catholic and he thought, where can I get some soldiers? Oh, where can I find some Catholics? I got an idea. I'll find them in Ireland. So he got in his little rowboat or whatever and went over to Ireland across the Irish Sea and was like, promised them the moon if they fought on his side. And so the Irish were like, yeah. And he was like, you know, fight with me and I'll give you your independence and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so the Irish did. And so so when they depo- when Parliament deposed him, you ask yourself, who did they put instead? Well, William and Mary were brought over as co-regents. And William of Orange, he's called William of Orange because that was the husband. He's Wait, so William not bloodless because Irish people died. Battles. Well, there were battles in Ireland. It would be like calling the American Civil War bloodless if you were teaching in Vermont because there were no battles in Vermont. Okay, okay. Oh. Um, so William of Orange, he was called William of Orange because he was a prince of a section of Holland, which is called Orange. Okay. OK, so it's it's a geographical thing, not a okay. color thing, but it became a color thing. So William of Orange and his wife, Mary, were put were brought into onto the throne and they're brought on as co-regents. William and Mary, the college is named after them. OK, mm-hmm. so William got on his white horse because there's lots of paintings of this. William got on his white horse and he went, got on his little rowboat or whatever and went across the Irish Sea to fight James. And they had a series of very bloody battles. Okay? OK, it was not a bloodless revolution. They had a series of very bloody battles. But William had better army and more more supplies and everything. And so William won. And the biggest battle and the most famous battle happened on the 12th of July in 1690. And it's called the Battle 
of the Boyne and the Boyne River is the river just north of Dublin. And so the Boyne River Valley is just north of Dublin. So the Battle of the Boyne was on the 12th of July in 1690. Now, the reason it drives me really crazy when teachers teach that this was a bloodless revolution, which is what I was taught in school, too, is because not only were there a series of very bloody battles, but it's still an issue to this day mm. because in Northern Ireland, in Ulster, those six counties that are still under British rule, there's an organization called the Orange Order. And they are supporters 500 years later of, well, uh, let me do the math. 400 years later, mm -hmm. their support, almost 400 years later, they're supporters of William of Orange. Okay? okay. And they celebrate the Battle of the Boyne every year on the 12th of July. And they're Scots Presbyterian descendants of those settlers. And they march through the streets of Belfast and Derry. Have you been there when they're doing that? No, I've been there right before, but I would not go into the North anywhere near the 12th of July because it's a hotbed of problems because they, they have in the past marched through Catholic areas, banging on these huge lambeg drums and singing songs about killing Catholics and hanging the Pope. Um, okay. <laughs> and to me, that would be like, I grew up in New Jersey. To me, that would be like marching through Atlanta and singing about the burning of Atlanta and the Civil War. Like, why? But they say everybody loves a parade. If you talk to them about it, which I have, they say it's our heritage. We're proud of our heritage and everybody loves a parade. Mm. Uh, but okay. there's always problems in the North. You can, you know, just Google the 12th of July, uh, Northern Ireland, and you'll get an eyeful. Um, and they have these huge bonfires that are as tall as like a four-story building that they burn with the Irish flag on top or, you know, burning the Irish flag in effigy because they're, they consider themselves British. Um, and I, this is so, this is so, um, feels obvious in retrospect, but I didn't know, I didn't realize that the Irish flag didn't come to be until the, uh, independence. Right, right, right. Yeah. In fact, the Irish flag, the tricolor, was illegal to fly in Northern Ireland until a few decades ago. Um, the first time I was in Northern Ireland was in 1980. And at that point, the tricolor was still illegal. Um, and you can, to this day, when you go into Northern Ireland, into the six provinces that are still under British control from that, you know, uh, plantation of Ireland, um, the Protestant neighborhoods of descendants of Scots Presbyterians, they paint their curbs red, white, and blue. And they're from the flagpoles, they fly the British flag and they consider themselves British. They do not consider themselves Irish. They say we're British. I know um, that we're still deeply in the middle of this, but just to ground us to like today's time for a second, one of the reasons why the Brexit, you know, and yes, the yes. UK leaving the EU was a big deal for Ireland is because the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland is currently the only land border yes. between the eu yes. and the uk yes yes actually exactly and that was a big problem with tariffs and everything yeah but what i was going to say is the catholic neighborhoods they paint their curbs green white and orange and the, the tricolor by the way was designed for the green to represent the native irish the orange to represent the Pro protestant settlers from William of Orange, mm -hmm. and the white mm -hmm. to separate the peace between the two. So huh. it's supposed to be a flag that pulls together mm -hmm. the Native Irish and the Scots Presbyterian settlers. Interesting. Um, 
yeah, it hasn't quite worked the way it was designed to work. But in any case, to this day, when you go to Northern Ireland, to those six counties that are still under British rule, um, it becomes very obvious if you're in an area that has strong sentiments one way or the other. Because Okay, so are we at the famine yet? We are moving our way quickly to the famine, okay? okay? So the Battle of Boyne, 1690, 12th of July, 1690. Again, Google any of this and you can find a lot of information. Um, James's army loses. Uh, they're called Jacobites, that army, because apparently Jacob is the biblical name for James. And so that army, James's army is called the Jacobite army. So the Jacobite soldiers that fought on James's side were given the uh, choice of either pledging their loyalty to the British crown or leaving Ireland. And something like 20,000 of them left Ireland for the continent, for France. And that's called the flight of the wild geese. And there's lots written about oh my that. God, I just, okay. yeah, I don't so know that how to keep all this information in. Uh, that takes us to 1695 and the penal laws. Penal, P-E-N-A-L. The penal laws were passed by the British Parliament to try again to sort of subjugate the Irish. And I'm reading this because I don't keep all of this in my head necessarily. Uh, the, the laws were passed between 1695 and 1705. The English Parliament passed a series of penal laws. And this is what they, and again, you can Google this, barred Catholics from public office, serving in the army and Navy, university, the legal profession, and from voting. No Catholics were allowed to buy land, inherit land, or lease land for more than 31 years. Inheritance laws changed so that any Catholic's child who converted to Protestantism became the rightful heir. Any Protestant who tattled on a Catholic for any infraction of the statutes was given his land as a reward. Any Catholic with a gun was liable to whipping. Horses worth more than five pounds were confiscated. The religious hierarchy, the priests, were exiled, deported, or imprisoned. Religious orders were banished. Rosary beads were outlawed, which is why even to this day in gift shops in Ireland, you can buy penal uh, rosaries, which are little tiny rosary beads with just one decade of the rosary. Catholics were forbidden to teach schools, keep schools, or send their kids overseas to schools. But some schoolmasters kept the Irish uh, sort of language, which also they tried to outlaw, um, alive and history alive and culture alive by teaching behind very tall bushes called hedgerows. And they were called the hedge schools. So they were traveling schoolmasters that taught hedge schools. Now, mm -hmm. the Irish language, some people don't even know there is an Irish language. Um, the English tried to outlaw that as well. But the English control of Ireland was strongest and has always been strongest um, historically in the area of, of Ireland that's geographically closest to England, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. The farther west you go, and remember, this is before highways and before cars right, or right, right. ease of travel. The farther west you go, the less control the English government had, really. Um, and the more the Irish, native Irish, were get were, could get away with sort of skirting any of these laws. Uh -huh. So that's why to this day, in the far west regions of Ireland, is where you still have the Gwaeltoc, which is which is where most of the Gwail talk is, which is where Irish, the Irish is still spoken in the home. The Irish language is still right. spoken in the home um, from the cradle. Okay, so that's those are the penal laws. Then in 1798, that's called The Year of the French, and there's a great novel called The Year of the French by Thomas Flanagan that talks about this. In 1798, a interestingly enough, a Protestant, not a Catholic, a Protestant named Wolf Tone, who, who was a nationalist and wanted Ireland to get its independence from England, 
led an uprising called the United Irish Uprising because he said that Protestants and Catholics had to work together um, to get our, to get Irish independence. And he succeeded in getting some support from the French and the French sent ships over and they landed at Kalala Bay in County Mayo, which is in the sort of north central west coast of Ireland. Wait, so was he French? Like what was his no, deal? No, he was Irish. He was Irish. He was Irish and he was Protestant and he had relationships with France? Yeah, I guess he was a good dip- diplomatic kind of person who could make connections. Okay. Um, and he... Um, he got French support and the French ships came over because the French and English really don't like each other. I mean, to mm-hmm. this day, they don't like each other. So when the French were given an opportunity to sort of like screw the English over, they were like, yeah, we're on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're all for that. You know, um, when I was in college, I took a year of college in England, 79, 80, my whole, uh, my junior year abroad. And I even knew people who wouldn't eat French apples in England. Like they, they just don't like each other. The French, mm. the English think the French are arrogant and the French think the English are stupid. I mean, this is a, a grand sweeping. <laughs> this is a grand sweeping generalization. Yes, yes. A- absolutely a grand sweeping generalization, but one that has historical roots. Okay. So anyway, so Wolf Tone gets the French to come over on ships. Um, they land at Kalala Bay in Mayo, in County Mayo, and find like not a very well uh, stocked or supported Irish army. The whole thing fell apart. And Wolf Tone, the British had better guns and everything. And Wolf Tone wound up getting arrested. And the morning of his execution, he was found dead in his cell with a slit throat. And of course, they said he did it to himself. But anyway, that's what they always say. Yeah, it is what they always say. That takes us to Daniel O'Connell, who in 1829 succeeded in getting the Catholics the right to vote. How did he do Um, that? He's called the the great liberator. Um, I need at some point to read a biography of Daniel O'Connell. He was from the west of Ireland and he was apparently a very clever guy. He was from County Kerry. And he was apparently a really clever guy with a very, very bright and very witty and and kind of a little bit sneaky. Like I heard one story about him once that there was some law in Parliament that if you did something for three days in a row, it became a law or something. And I don't I don't think I'm getting this right. But apparently he wore a hat. And three days in a row. And then he said, like, now it's a law. I have to wear. A hat. I don't know. There was it could also like, be like urban legend or something. It could be urgent, urban legend. But I went to his home years ago around 1980 in Kerry. And that's where I heard that. But since mm. I heard it in 1980, it's pretty sketchy in my mind about what the story was. I mean, that's anybody listening to, this to me that you even remember a sliver of it. A funny story. So anyway, Daniel O'Connell, he actually won a seat in Parliament. Are we are we at all closer to the famine now? Yes, 1829. We're very close to the famine. Um, And he got Catholics the right to vote. And the main street in Dublin was renamed after him after Ireland got its independence. It was originally called Sackville Street, and now it's called O'Connell Street. Mm. And the statue of Daniel O'Connell is at the foot of the the street. So he's he's a huge figure in Irish history, and I need to read a bio of him. Um, Okay, so in 1845, the potato goes bad. So you say to yourself, so what? The potato goes bad. That can't be the only thing they were growing. They were growing lots of stuff and they had all those sheep and all those cattle. Who cares if the potato goes bad? Well, I'll tell you. Remember, <laughs> let's go back to the plantation thing. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So remember the plantation of Ireland. Remember the absentee landlords. Remember how the Irish had to pay rent on their own yes. land. Yes. Remember how they were dispossessed and t- thrown off the land and either had to like go far west where the land isn't. But they were still old. like, if they were still living well, in those properties, they were still farming for those landlords, right? Exactly. And right. so the way they paid rent was to sell off the sheep or sell off the cattle or sell off the other crops to pay their rents, which they had to do. The potato apparently is very easy to grow in a very small, rocky soil. And so they wound up over the years and even centuries, I suppose, um, becoming reliant on the potato because the other stuff was needed to pay off the rent. And so when the potato crop went bad five years in a row. So wait, 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 I because they are shipping out all their food. Yes. All their other crops. Yes. Okay. So they had two choices when the potato went. So bad, are they, they mainly eating potatoes up until yes. this point? Yes. And they are shipping everything else to England. Yes. Okay. Now, apparently you can, you can, and anybody listening to this can Google this too. Apparently you can survive on potatoes. Um, it's got a lot of nutrients in it. A potato has a lot of nutrients in it. I didn't know that. Um, but apparently you can, and you can feed a whole family on in a little area of soil with potatoes. In fact, uh, Fiona, daddy and I are growing potatoes on the deck, even as we speak. Is that a first? I didn't, I don't think it's a first. We've been growing, we've been growing tomatoes for years, but we decided, I decided this year to try potatoes because I'm out. So anyway, so they had two, when the potato went bad five years in a row, they had two choices. One was to slaughter the sheep and the cattle and eat them and, or the crops they were growing, eat those. But if they did that, they couldn't pay their rents. And if they didn't pay their rents, the absentee landlords who thought the Irish were prone to exaggeration sent local sheriffs or the equivalent thereof um, to to throw them out of the homes. And they actually would pull down the thatch roof, knock in the doors and whatever else and throw them out and make the house inhospitable so that they couldn't return when the sheriff or the equivalent thereof came back to check. Uh, or had left the area. Okay, so that was one choice. And that those people wound up on the roads and- um, Eating grass. Right. Um, Or they could continue paying the rents by shipping out their cattle and sheep and crops and stay in their home and die of starvation in their homes. So- Was there, like, how did they know how many crops that they had or if they could just smuggle some, you know, and not send them out? Were there like people checking? Like, how would they? Well, they would, no, no, no. They would owe a certain amount for the rent. Like they would, you know, count the sheep and count the cattle and weigh the produce or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so millions wound up that could afford to, that could get it together to, um, get got on ships to leave Ireland. Millions. Um, the population halved during the famine from 8 million to 4 million. But um, as you have mentioned in the past, some people call it the great hunger because right. there was food. There was it no, just right. was it not. Right. A, they weren't allowed to eat it. Or yes. Keep it. Yes. A lot of historians don't even call it a famine. They call it a potato blight and the great hunger because they see it as sort of a genocide because the English, it was a time of laissez-faire government. The English thought, the powers that be thought the Irish were, were lazy and prone to exaggeration. Of course, this is before ease of transportation. So nobody kind of, you know, it, that had any degree of, of power went over to Ireland to check it out. 
Um, and there's a great book on this called The Great Hunger by Cecil Woodham Smith. Um, that's sort of the seminal work on this. It's fascinating. I read it when I was like 21 and couldn't put it down because it's just so fascinating. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So anyway, that's how all of a sudden, for our purposes, um, America uh, became so Irish because uh, the East Coast anyway, uh, Boston, New York. Yeah. Philadelphia, Chicago became Irish cities because millions of Irish left Ireland. And, um, but they call them coffin ships because a lot of Irish died because they were so weakened by, by hunger. A lot of them died on the ships. So anyway, that's, that's the, uh, the potato blight or the famine. Um, and so then that takes us to the fact that there were so many Irish that left Ireland and established themselves overseas, established themselves in uh, some of the cities in, in Britain, established themselves in the United States, in Canada, in Australia and New Zealand, and actually became many of them became very successful in those places and mm -hmm. started sending money back home. Um, I know my own grandfather uh, sent money back home to Mayo for his entire life. Mm -hmm. um, and so they sent their money back home as, oh, as most back. immigrants do, as most immigrants do. Absolutely. And so, but the impact that this had on Ireland was it's the, the Irish diaspora, um, supported Ireland's independence from Britain. Okay. Because they, they saw the effect of mm -hmm. the, the famine or the potato blight. They're like, Oh, we, we can be successful. Right. And the great hunger emphasized that Ireland needed its own government and it's uh, to be the master of its own destiny. And so there was a split, though, between home rule and home rule meant still be being part of Britain, but having uh, an Irish parliament that mm -hmm. would would take care of local affairs, but still being part of Britain versus the Republicans. And re when you say Republican in Ireland has nothing to do with the American Republican Party, it's not related at all. It means supportive of an Irish Republic, supportive of, of total and utter independence from Britain. Mm -hmm. So there's a split between the Home Rule Party and the Republican Party. And the the Irish diaspora, the people who'd left Ireland, tended to be more supportive of the Republican uh, movement. Okay, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which and, and later the Irish Republican Army, all of these were groups that supported Irish total Irish independence. And in 1892, the Gaelic League was formed in Ireland um, by William Butler Yeats and Lady Gregory and James Stevens and George Russell and Singh. And they were uh, writers, poets, uh, authors who um, who founded the Abbey Theatre and tried to emphasize Irish pride, pride in Irish arts, in Irish language, et cetera, et cetera. And then World War I broke out. So when World War I broke out, the Irish in Ireland were like, oh, hey. Now, mind you, there were there were many other uprisings that I didn't touch on here. It's not like uh -huh. there were a few uprisings. But in when World War I broke out, the Irish in Ireland were like, you know, the British army is pretty busy. And so maybe this is our opportunity. Maybe this is when we can mm -hmm. have an uprising and the British army is too busy on the continent. And so we will be successful because they don't have enough troops to send them over here too. Mm -hmm. And so the, the Easter, it's called the Easter rising. It was the day after Easter. So Easter Monday in 1916, of 1916, 1916, right. 
the Easter Rising was Easter Monday in 1916. And it was led by teachers and poets and authors and labor leaders. And uh, they took over government buildings in, because remember, it's still the British government's in control of Ireland. They took over government buildings in Dublin. They mm-hmm. took over the GPO, which is the general post office mm-hmm. on what's now O'Connell Street was then Sackville Street. And they they smuggled in arms. They smuggled in arms from other countries and some from Germany uh, because Germany was fighting against England. And so Germany supported them. So they smuggled in arms and they took over the GPO and some other government buildings in Dublin but didn't have the popular support of most people. Most people in Ireland were like, these people are nuts. What do they think they're going to accomplish? Uh-huh. I just want to get my, you know, I want to buy my stamps at the, at the post office. And yeah. you're like, I was in line to buy stamps. Go away, little boy. Um, and so they didn't have the popular support. And it lasted about, I think it was about five days. Um, and the British army did wind up sending more troops to Ireland. And they did quash the rebellion. And Dublin was like, a lot of buildings were blown up in the process and destroyed. I mean, you can see pictures. If you look online, you can see actual photographs because this is the era of photography. You can see black and white photographs of Sackville Street, uh, the main street and the GPO. And there's still, to this day, if you go to the GPO, the general post office on O'Connell Street, there's still bullet holes in the walls from the uprising. Mm, wow. um, or the they call it the rising, mm-hmm. Easter, Easter 1916, Easter Monday. And so uh, the the where they got where the British government went really wrong yet again was they executed the leaders. Um, they shot them in Kilmainham jail. And if any of you go to Dublin and you get a chance to go to Kilmainham jail, a Kilmainham jail and jail is spelled G-A-O-L. Okay. The Kilmainham jail, G-A-O-L. It was the main jail where the patriots and the leaders of the 1916 rising were executed. So did that like inspire popular support? Yes, yes, yes. That's what uh, inspired popular support. Not the initial uprising. Exactly. Because these people were like teachers and poets and Mm -hmm. they were shot by a firing squad. And Joseph Plunkett like got married to his fiance Grace Griffith in like in Kilmainham jail and then was shot a couple hours later. Um, Yeah. So so Patrick Pierce was one of the leaders. He had a school. He was a school principal. He had a school outside of Dublin, um, a boys school that he led and he founded St. Enda's. He founded and led it. Um, and so, and J- James Connolly, there's lots of songs about James Connolly. He was a labor leader. He was shot um, in a chair because his he had been badly wounded in the battle and couldn't walk. And so they strapped him to a chair to execute him. And then the firing squad shot him. So the people in Dublin and in Ireland were like, are you kidding me? And they were furious after this. So th- they became martyrs, basically. Right. Uh, and uh, so Easter 1916. So that led to the Irish War of Independence. And the Irish War of Independence was 1919 to 1921. And it was against the British. And the the Irish sort of basically won, but the problem became that there was a really strong, continued to be a really strong unionist uh, sentiment in Ulster, in those, what now are the six counties of Northern uh-huh. Ireland. 
Ulster actually is nine counties, but six of them were very strong unionist and unionist support means union with Britain. They wanted okay. to remain united with Britain and they were very vocal about so that. why so so why sort of so sort of when did i say sort of sort of they sort of won oh oh okay because michael Eamon de valera was involved in the rising but wasn't executed because he had been born in new york and so he had i think an irish mother and a spanish father or something and he was born in new york i have to read a bio of his too but uh, uh, uh but Eamon de valera became the first president by the way of ireland when it got its independence Eamon de valera sent michael collins who was a military leader in that uh war of independence he sent michael collins to to sign the peace treaty with the british government and michael collins the best he could get out of the british government was that 26 counties of Ireland would get their independence. Okay. But six counties of Ulster, and they gerrymandered the, the area. They took out Donegal, which is part of Ulster, but mostly mm -hmm. Catholic. They took out Monaghan, which is part of Ulster, but mostly Catholic. And they took out Cavan, which is also part of Ulster, but mostly Catholic. Okay, they kept six counties. So the best They struck a deal. I struck a deal. And the best Michael Collins could get was the 26 counties uh, would get their independence from Britain and form the what became the Republic of Ireland. Uh -huh. I think at that point it was called the Free State. But in any case, um, what became the Republic of Ireland and six counties of the historical Ulster, which were had Unionist or Scots Presbyterian Protestant majorities, would remain part of Britain. So when Michael Collins signed that treaty, he was said he said, I have just signed my death warrant. And he was right because he was then ambushed and killed. So okay. to this day after that's yeah, for for signing this treaty. Um, and so by for agreeing to give up six counties in the north. So to this day, Wait, who killed him? His own people. OK. Irish Republicans mm. that wanted a, the whole island to be free. They thought he right. sold out. They thought he sold out by signing this treaty that kept six counties uh, in the north under British control. So to this day, he's a very controversial figure. There's a movie about him called Michael Collins, actually. Um, and some people think Eamon de Valera set him up, that Eamon mm. de Valera knew what was going to happen. And he so just didn't want to be that guy. want to be that guy. So he sent Michael Collins. Um, yeah. So how old, how old was Michael Collins? Gosh, I think he was in his 30s. He wasn't that okay. old. Right. Um, maybe early 30s. I don't know. He wasn't that old. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, to this day, uh, some people are like pro-treaty. Some people are against treaty. Some people think he got the best he could get. Some people think Dave Valera set him up. Um, yeah. Some people hate Dave Valera. Some people hate Michael Collins. Uh, if you're in an Irish bar where there's a whole lot of native Irish people, it's best just not even to bring it up yeah me, <laughs> if you don't bring any of this <laughs> so then that led the signing of the treaty led to the irish civil war and the irish civil war was just one year long 1922 to 23 and it was between the pro-treaty people who think mike thought michael collins did the best he could and this was the as good as it's going to get and the anti-treaty people who thought you know this civil is civil war as in between the the republic or between yes. the republic and the north just the Republic. Oh, um, I guess there were forces on both sides. Okay. I guess also there were forces that were 
like pro treaty. I just didn't know if there were if Northerners were involved. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know who. I would assume the whole island was involved, but I haven't read enough about it to know exactly. Okay, so it was about it was over the treaty and the pro treaty people obviously won because the island's still divided. Gotcha. Um, And uh, yeah. And oh, I by the way, when Michael Collins was killed, there was ambushed in 1922 by his own people. Um, 500,000 Irish attended his funeral, which was one mm-hmm. fifth of the entire population of the island. Is that fair to say that they were probably pro treaty people? Or they were just like, they just felt really bad for him. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, like he was set up. Okay. So, so Ireland is now, you know, 26 counties are now form what is called the Republic of Ireland. And again, Republican in Ireland refers to supporters of the Republic of Ireland, has nothing to do with the American party, political party. Um, Unionist to this day refers to people that who are primarily people in in the six counties in Northern Ireland who tend who are Protestant, uh, support union with Britain, maintaining the union with Britain. And as you said, um, Brexit has made this again an issue. Yeah, this is obviously we've stopped at like 19, what, 20? Well, yeah, because then something 23. But like there's obviously so much that we have not touched on and probably won't in this setting because it's, you know, I mean, we would. Well, I can say a couple of quick things. Right, right. I can say a couple of quick things, though. Um, And that is that uh, the Republic of Ireland joined the EEC, the European Economic Community in 1973, which later became the EEU. And um, as a result of that, they got an influx of money. And the influx of money caused Ireland to change dramatically from an agrarian economy to a high-tech economy. Ireland never had an industrial revolution, okay? Ireland went from a whole lot of sheep and a whole lot of cattle and produce to really cool cell phones and highways. Yeah, but I feel like the 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 section that we've skipped over that I'm like, if you're listening and you want more information, just call my mom or like ask me <laughs> for her details because you didn't touch on the troubles or the IRA, which I right. feel like are things that people yeah. In fact, if you're interested about, which is tours, if you're interested in my tours, my night, my 2024 tour is going to go, is going to go from Dublin North into Northern Ireland, Belfast and Derry and along the Antrim coastline, which is gorgeous. And then down the West coast through Sligo, Mayo, Galway, and then back across and Clare, and then back across the country because right. Northern coastline is gorgeous, but I will have to do a lot of history of Northern Ireland in preparation of that. And the troubles, right. That was where the Catholics in Northern, I can do it in three minutes or less. The Catholics in Northern Ireland. Okay. One minute. The Catholics (laughs) in Northern Ireland were inspired by the civil rights movement in the United States because until a few decades ago in Northern Ireland for local elections, people got to vote based on how much land they owned. So if you rented an apartment, you couldn't vote. You had no vote. If you owned an apartment department store, which meant you were Protestant because of centuries of uh, Catholic disenfranchisement, you got multiple votes. Hmm. So like the people that owned Austin's department store got like lots of votes. But if you rented an apartment or rented a house, you couldn't vote at all. So whenever you see people voted this way or people voted that way, as Americans, we make an assumption, one person, one vote, but you can't always make that assumption. Mm. Not all not all countries have the same laws. So right. when people 
said, oh, well, the people in Northern Ireland voted, then you have to say, well, who voted and how many votes did they get? Right. So the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland was in in uh, response to that. The Catholics were like, we think it should be one person, one vote and blah, 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 blah. And so there was a big movement for civil rights movement. And then there were riots that broke out. And then the British army sent over soldiers to quell the riots. And the Catholics were happy. In and the this beginning. is what years? 1960s. Right. Okay. Um. So the Catholics were happy in the beginning when the British army showed up because they were like, Okay, it was in 69, actually, the British Army showed up because they were like, okay, yeah, yeah, now we won't be picked on so much. But then it turned out that the British Army was supportive of, obviously, union with Britain. I mean, was that so much of a surprise? Like, Well, in the beginning, the Catholics were just didn't want to get their houses firebombed anymore. Um, so, yeah, it, it went south pretty quickly. And there's a really, really good series on this on YouTube that you can watch that's about the troubles in North, the euphemistically called the troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, and so the British army was there. Um, I hitchhiked through Northern Ireland in 1980, which was probably not very smart. Um, and there were like no tourists and lots of British soldiers with right. very big guns. Um, but that's another podcast. Okay. So, <laughs> so back to, back to 73, uh, the EEC and then became the EEU. Ireland all of a sudden got highways, uh, in the 90s, and Ireland became economically prosperous. They call that the Celtic Tiger. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people started moving to Ireland, which totally changed the gene pool because pretty much nobody would moved to Ireland since like the Vikings and the Normans um, and the plantation of Ireland, you know, but but people didn't move to Ireland because there were no jobs. So so this changed their mm -hmm. gene pool, which is a good thing because it was pretty inbred gene pool. Um, and so now if you go to Ireland, you'll see people from all over the world that live in Dublin, yeah. you know, because people went over there when Ireland became uh, more, more economically stable. Um, but they had the same housing bubble burst we did. Um, and so they at one point were building more houses than people could actually live in. Uh, but it has changed the, the population uh, dramatically. And um, Ukrainians. Ireland's taken. Oh my in God! <laughs> Ireland's taken in over seventy. I'm going to have to cut you off at some point. Well, I'm pretty much into the the current era. Uh -huh. Ireland's taken over seventy thousand Ukrainians, and so um, that's you know housing is again become an issue because uh, all of a sudden they went to having what they called ghost estates, which were empty houses that were half finished, to not having enough housing for for everybody. Um, Ireland has also become much more liberal than the United States, paradoxically, because the Catholic Church was very strong in Ireland until a few decades ago when the clerical sex, sex abuse scandal also impacted Ireland. And um, and then Irish orphanages, uh, they they were found to have, you know, hidden away and buried babies um, that what? died died of starvation and mistreatment or hunger or whatever. And no, I'm not suggesting they killed babies. They not kill babies, but they they mistreated children um, in the Irish orphanages that were run by the church. Um, and so so Ireland has become much more secular. And Ireland was the first country in the world. Like they actually responded to that discovery. Right. Yes. Ireland was the first country in the world to vote in same sex marriage by a popular referendum. Um, and so and, you know, you, and that was like 2015. 
Yes. And you were there last summer when we were there for the gay pride parade in Dublin, which was. Well, I, I remember being like there in hours. 20. No, but we were there in 2016 when it had just happened. And yes. I remember the flags. Gay pride flags all over Dublin. Yeah. Um. So the Irish government still is still encourages the use of the Irish language. The Gwail talk people uh, that live in the Gwail talk and use Irish in the home are given a tax break. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because they don't want the language to die out. Um, but it's it's harder and harder with the internet, you know, to keep people, I think, interested in using a language that's not used commonly, although it is considered one of the one of two principal languages, obviously, in Ireland. Uh-huh and is recognized by the EU. Now, the last thing I want to say, can I say one last thing? You can say one last thing. Okay. I talk about the travelers. I don't know if you want to, do you want to talk about this? No, no, I do. I do. I want to say that about 31,000 people identify themselves as travelers. And some people erroneously think they're gypsies, um, but they do not have any like uh, blood from the continent uh, from Romania or any of those uh, Eastern European areas. Apparently they are native Irish and there's lots of theories about one theory was that they were the dispossessed people from the famine and then DNA evidence suggested, no, it goes that farther. Um, but the, they're, they're people that they're called the travelers because they used to live in caravans. Um, and even when I first went to Ireland, there were lots of caravans on the side of the road that were horse-drawn, horse-drawn caravans. Mm. They kind of look like Conestoga wagons. Um, now they tend to be, you know, uh, I don't know, modern caravans, <laughs> mobile caravans. Um, and they tend to uh, s- stay within themselves, the, those communities. Um, they don't necessarily intermarry with people who are not travelers. So uh, they apparently in... Uh, 2017, the Irish Parliament rec- formally recognized the travelers as a distinct ethnic minority. And okay. you can read up on them online. The okay. Prime Minister in Ireland is called the Taoiseach. Okay, good fun fact. And the current Taoiseach is uh, Leo Valadiker, Vel- and he uh, is uh, part, sorry, there's no R- L in his name, Ver- it's V-A-R-A-D-K-A-R. Veradiker. Um, he's part Irish and part Indian, and he's also openly gay. He's first openly gay. How long has he been? He was Taoiseach first in 2017 to 2020, and then he was reelected in 2022. Okay. I don't think I knew that he was- Or reappointed. I the Taoiseach he... is appointed by his party. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't think I knew that part. He He was the first Irish minister of Indian heritage and the first openly gay Irish minister. Minister is not a religious term. Like in Harry Potter, it means a government official. Mm -hmm. Okay. 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 Do you want to take a deep breath? (laughs) Yeah, I could say more, but I won't. (laughs) I know you can say more, but the point is just to, you know, this. Did I do okay? You did great. But like the point is that this is a lot to take in and not everyone is an avid reader who might, you know, hopefully this is another option for people who enjoy listening to history or, you know, or want like a, a dual reading and listening option or something of that sort. So I'm just, thank you, Fiona. This was, this was your idea and it was a lovely idea. And thank you. Yes. You're welcome. I mean, I just, I know that you could go on for ages, so I'm going to try to uh, rein it in here. Time. But... Okay, so if I'm going to do a tour into the north in 2024, 
at some point, maybe after this year's tour, we come back and do a segment on Northern Ireland and I can talk about hitchhiking through the North in 2024 because I have lots of interesting, I think are interesting stories and insights um, based Well, that's the thing is I feel like the, the point of reading the history in advance is because when you're actually on the tour, you get the personal stories, but you need the history to like add the context, but yes, the, um, Oh, wait, to clarify, I hitchhiked in, in 1980, but my tour is going to be in 2024. Well, yes. (laughs) Um, okay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I'm very excited for this year. I'm happy to be going again. I'm looking um, forward to spending time with you over there again. Yes, and excited for everyone who will be with us and who might be interested going forward. Just to repeat the website one more time, it's www.ergotours.com, E-I-R-E-Go-Tours.com. And you also have an active Facebook page. <laughs> um, and the email address is, what is it, the same or is there a dash? Oh, it's There's some dots. E-I-R-E dot G-O dot tours at gmail.com. Right. And that information is on the website as well anyway. So um, if anyone has further questions or wants to um, poke your brain about this stuff, that's where you can find her. Um, and yeah. And if you, if you hear anything that you think I left out that I should have mentioned or anything that you think I got wrong, please let us know. Or yeah, of course. But like know, there's, I mean. I'm always open to that. Right. But like I said, th- this could go for hours. So right. you're just trying to hit the main right. points. Um, so, but yes, sure. Of course. We're- oh, oh, here's a little aside. Okay. Um, you know, William of Orange, yes. uh, there's a flower named after him. And in England, the flower is called the sweet William. And in Ireland, the same flower is called the stinking Billy. That's funny. Okay. We will leave it there. Okay. And everyone who will be attending this year can look forward to more fun facts like that. Right. Okay. Love you. you. Love you. This has been Fiona Winch and Francesca Winch with Thoughtful Intentions.